providing real solutions for real business challenges. Welcome to FNF Unplugged, Season 4. Conversations with professionals across the country, exploring business topics and empowering personal growth in real estate, financial services, and the title insurance industry. Josh Linkner, welcome to FNF Unplugged. It is really a pleasure to have you here today. I know you and I have worked together in the past, but I want our audience to know who you are because if they look at your bio and they see creative troublemaker or jazz guitarist, a lot of people are going to think that that's really one and the same thing. (laughs) Well, Linda, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you and I'm grateful for the opportunity for our conversation today. Yeah, I'm a weird mix of things, as I'm sure most of us are. You're correct. I started my career as a jazz guitarist. I, I grew up in the city of Detroit, and I'm still still a passionate guitarist and a passionate Detroit guy. But uh, at age 20, I started a tech company. I'd never taken a business class and just sort of figured it out. I have this fundamental belief that that things are figureoutable, that there's a way to work through problems and, and seize opportunities. So I, I built that company up, sold it, and kind of rinse and repeat. So over the next 30 years, Started, built, and sold five tech companies, created about 10,000 jobs. And uh, in 2010, I started a venture capital firm. I started a a different one last year. And ultimately, I've been involved in the launch of over 100 startups. So I'm kind of like this entrepreneur, creative dude. Uh, And the last thread I'll share is that uh, in 2009, I started writing a book on innovation and creativity. Not so much in the sense of like how to become an artist, but more how can normal folks like you and me, business people, apply the ideas of, of, of inventive thinking and creative problem solving to win in business. So I, said, I went on to write four books on this topic, and I have the great honor to speak all over the world on the topic of cultivating innovation and creativity to drive better outcomes. We're going to talk about that book shortly, but... Let's talk about the startups. Doing a startup is so difficult. Number one, there's all the the heavy considerations. Do I have enough money? Is this the right time to do it? Do I have the right people? Am I the right person to do it? I may have this great idea, but how do you go about and execute it and really make that next step with regards to a startup or maybe just branching out in a different area of your own company? Well, you're right that it is hard to start a company. Um, it's never been easier. In the past, you know, imagine 100 years ago, you want to start a company, you have to like build a factory and buy all this equipment. And now, because the cost, to, especially in the digital age, have come down so greatly, I think there's never been a, a better time to start a company. You have low cost of starting, you have global access instantly, talent all over the world. So the dynamics, I think, right now support entrepreneurship. But I think you're right that starting anything new is difficult. I always equate a startup with, that of the space shuttle. I guess when the space shuttle lifts off, it burns two thirds of its fuel in the first like 20 minutes to get out of the world's atmosphere. But then once it's in atmosphere, it can circle around the world for a couple of weeks on the remaining third of its fuel. And that term, when you, when you kind of break through, uh, there's a physics term called escape velocity, escape velocity. And I think that's what you try to do in a startup is work really hard to put a bunch of energy up front so that you can hit escape velocity quickly and then sort of build on the momentum that you've started. This applies when you're doing inside a company too. It doesn't have to be putting on a hoodie in your garage and starting a tech company. You know, we're, we're taking on a new project. We're, we're going after a new client. The same principles of entrepreneurship, I think, can apply. And the faster, again, that we can kind of hit that escape velocity, uh, generally, the better we'll be. How do you keep that momentum going? Because I've seen in a lot of companies 
even just individual teams or even individuals, you've got that momentum in the beginning, but then it starts to fizzle. Maybe only half the things go well, or maybe nothing goes well in the very beginning. So how do you keep that momentum going and keep your own engagement or your team's engagement, or maybe persuading leadership in engaging? I think a lot of it is connecting with the real core reason why you're doing something. And I feel that if it has a selfish intent, it fizzles quickly. But if it has a noble intent, the momentum sustains. And what I mean by that is if you're like, okay, I want to just win the Jones account so I can get a bonus, that's one thing. But if you're like, okay, I'm pursuing something that's going to make an impact in the world. I'm going to leave legacy. I'm going to help other people. I'm chasing impact instead of selfish dollars. What ends up happening in that case is that you end up, I think, sustaining in those darker days, which are inevitable. You're always going to have setbacks in anything worth pursuing. And again, if it's just a selfish intent, your motivation can fizzle. If you're chasing something bigger, that's for me anyway, what I've found helps me sustain those, those inevitable rough patches. Right now, the marketplace, at least in the financial services industry, is not that great. But if you talk to different people, there are a big group of people that say, this is a great time of opportunity. How do you balance that lens of looking at something half full versus half empty? Well, there's a great saying in the startup world is great leaders never uh, miss the opportunity of a recession. And uh, so I think when you look actually historically at times of difficulty, some of the biggest companies in the world were birthed in the Great Depression and you know various, various difficult environments. In fact, volatility often breeds opportunity. And so when you see things changing, when you're at some type of inflection point, which can be very difficult and you know could be interest rates or whatever else are difficult, therein lies a new opportunity because things are changing. And so actually entrepreneurs internally and externally tend to gravitate toward those problem spots. Like if everything was happy, you wouldn't be able to launch something new. But when things are difficult, actually that creates unlocks new opportunity. So you know, I, I run a venture capital firm called uh, Mudita Venture Partners, and in in this case, um, right now we're investing heavily because things are difficult, and, and we see beautiful opportunity in, in that difficulty because the world's changing, because there's new challenges. Again, therein lies the opportunity. Give us a few tips about that. How do we get to step two and step three? It always seems like step one is kind of easy. But it's the next couple steps of whether it be a new geography, a new company, maybe a new team, maybe reshuffling the team. Yeah, you know what's funny is like, I forget who it was, some famous entrepreneur basically said that each day is day one. And I kind of always liked that phrase. Maybe it may have been Bezos. Uh, but but the, the notion is that if you're ever at the point where you're like, I, I figured it out, I cracked the code, I'm just going to rest on my laurels. That's like the beginning of the end to me. And so I think that instead, you know, you get to one point and then you walk in and there's a new set of challenges and opportunities. You know, you kind of work through that and, and then there's the next one. So I think it's it's sort of isolating, compartmentalizing them one at a time and using the same energy and, and passion and creativity that got you from step one to step two, even if you're going from step eight to step nine. I've often talked about, do you remember the game Frogger, the video game Frogger? from? Like, oh, yes, very well. Me too, is one of my old favorites. So in the game Frogger, for those that haven't played the game, you're this little frog and the goal is to cross the river. Thing is that the frog can't swim. So the frog has to jump on the back of things that are solid surfaces in order to get across the river, things floating in the river. So it could be the back of a turtle or a log or you know, a lily pad. And the problem is those things are moving. And so what happens, you, you, you make one jump on, a, on, let's say on the back of a log. Great, that's success. But if you just stand still, you fall in the river and die. 
in Frogger, you have to ask, once you're on solid surface, then you got to like jump to the lily pad and then you got to jump to the turtle back. And so the notion of Frogger is that you're jumping from one point of success, dry land to the next in an increasingly accelerated pace. And the, the mere act of standing still is a death sentence. I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but there's some parallel there in the business world that I've seen companies that have achieved greatness and then they get so comfortable. And that, that again is the beginning of the end. So for me, it's about you know having the humility and grace to say, okay, I achieved something, that's great. Now I have to start at day one on the next thing and take it with a fresh set of eyes. Truly, I think that's a great analogy because one misstep, even in our own industry, can possibly fail an entire company. It does happen. So let's talk a little bit about big little breakthroughs. Now, this is one of my favorite books, and I just want to admit to the audience that we even utilize that book in a couple team building exercises of our own. So I want you to talk about what's in big little breakthroughs. Yeah, thank you. So Big Little Breakthroughs, I set out to demystify the weird, squishy topic of human creativity. I went out, I spent over a thousand hours interviewing CEOs, billionaires, celebrity entrepreneurs, Grammy award-winning musicians. And the whole goal was to try to understand how do the most innovative people think and act? And what I discovered was really something bold. The best innovators don't wake up every day swinging for the fences. They don't wake up taking high-risk moonshots. Instead, they cultivate small daily acts of creativity, micro-innovations, or I call them big little breakthroughs. And the notion is by making creativity a habit and making this type of thinking accessible to everybody in a company, that's sort of the modern approach that works. In other words, innovation isn't only for a select few wearing lab coats or hoodies, it's for us all. And that's what big little breakthroughs is. It, it, it dissects the mindsets, habits, and tactics of the most innovative people on the planet to help people like you and me apply those principles on, a, on an everyday basis. I really believe that innovation is an everyday business. Habits are hard to come by, though, because it's easy to say, I'm just going to make this my habit. I'm going to start exercising twice a week. I'm going to say positive things to my staff, at least one thing a day. We can say that we're going to create those habits, but creating habits is tough. How do we get from wanting to create those habits or having created habits to them actually happening and becoming part of you? Such a great question. Two things. One of them is start small. You know, back to the notion of, of big little breakthroughs, which are small innovations, not big ones. Same thing, you know, if you wake up, let's say you haven't exercised for 20 years, you know, like, I'm going to go to gym, the gym for four hours, and I'm going to get a trainer, and then I'm going to go for a jog. Like, that's a recipe for disaster because you, you, after day one, there's no way day two is happening. In that case, like they would tell you, go for a walk around the block, take a small first step, enjoy some rewards from it, get comfortable before taking in the next step. It doesn't have to be arduous and, and overwhelming and difficult. And so I think that the way to start is to start, <laughs> you know, and it could be something really simple. Like I'll, I'll tell you a two minute exercise that I still do every day, two minutes. I wake up in the morning and first I try to take in the creativity of others. I spend one minute sort of bathing in other people's creativity. What that looks like, I might watch a, a live band on YouTube. I might stare at a painting or read a poem out loud. And simply what this does is it gets me, gets my juices flowing. Then for the next one minute, I take on what I would call an unrelated problem. So for example, uh, if I said, how could I reduce traffic at rush hour in Chicago? Well, I don't live in Chicago. It's not my personal problem. 
And I'm not trying to solve it with one big idea. It's not a silver bullet challenge. It's more like, okay, what little teeny bites could I do if I had was charged with, with trying to reduce traffic in Chicago? And the goal isn't here to really have a, an output. It's more like jumping jacks for your creativity. So literally, I spend two minutes. That's it. I guzzle the, the, the creativity of others for one minute. I give myself some random challenge, like what would I have to do to win the Olympics in some sport? And, and then I'm on my day. So two minutes. I've asked people to try this. What I've heard is that after 30 days of just doing that two-minute exercise, people's worldview completely changes. They're able to unlock bold creativity that they hadn't even contemplated. Josh, how do we integrate these moments of creativity or these creative habits or these big little breakthroughs into a team, into a team atmosphere, into a company atmosphere? How do you go from my individual habits to my team's habits with our customers? Well, that's really the fun part. Creativity, often you think of someone in a log cabin by themselves toiling away at the great American novel, but the collaborative creativity is, is actually more often productive and certainly more fun. I play jazz music and jazz is really a, a big collaborative creativity session. So when, when we go play a jazz gig, let's say there's five musicians, we may have never met, let alone rehearsed. And now we're performing a song, even if we played the song a bunch in the past, Every time it's different. Only 1% of the notes are on the written page and the rest you have to improvise as you go. And that improvisation isn't just each person individually, it's collective or collaborative creativity. In other words, I might play something on the guitar that's original, but not very good. Then the bass player though listens, here's what I did, builds on it. The drummer builds on it. And eventually the sax player takes what we started, rips a killer solo to the delight of the crowd. We'd say, well, who created that? Truthfully, we all created that. And so the notion of using creativity in a team or collaborative environment actually is very productive. And the way you start is there are some very simple techniques. There's warm-up techniques, there's brainstorming techniques that are a lot of fun and get people's juices flowing very quickly. And actually feeding off of the energy and creativity of others is a great way to spike individual performance. You know our industry fairly well. You've worked with our company, you've worked with related companies. How do you relate this to a service industry where you're not really touching and feeling those products? Because I hear a lot of people say that their creativity is kind of stammered because they can't touch and feel something. They can't touch and feel a book or a product or a new little piece of technology. How do we translate creativity for the service industry? That's a great question. The good news is there's plenty of room for creativity outside of physical goods and services type industries like ours. I think the, um, the, the center point generally is you, what I call fall in love with the problem. And so maybe you're spending some time in a state of empathy, really saying, okay, what are our clients feeling? Where are their pain points? What are their unmet needs? What do they wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat feeling? If they could wave their magic wand, what's one problem they wish could go away? And so when you, when you fall in love with a problem instead of a particular solution, you can really start to, to look at that problem from a number of ways, use different lenses and start kind of riffing or, or jamming on new ideas to solve that problem. It doesn't have to be a physical good. I mean, that, that can be obviously a service-related problem. So that, that same approach, uh, Linda, also applies internally. When you say fall in love with a problem, it could be a client or customer problem, but it could be an internal one. How many times are people around the, the coffee pot saying, oh, you know, this one process is so dumb. Form 87B is the dumb, silliest thing. We've been doing this for decades. Well, there's a problem. And so I think half of the innovation mindset is, is being on the lookout for those pain points. 
um, those little areas of frustration. Then in turn, once we lock our sites, we can be much more directed using kind of pinpoint accuracy as we deploy creativity. That reminds me of two areas that uh, I read about in your book. One of them, open a test kitchen, and the other one, uh, break it to fix it. Tell me about those two things. Sure. Well, we'll go in reverse order there. The principle that I espouse called break it to fix it. And too often we heard that advice, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And by the way, like who came up with that slogan? That is the worst piece of advice ever. Why would you wait until something's broken to get along with an upgrade? So so the most innovative people do the opposite. They're carefully looking at things that look fine on the surface, but they're willing to deconstruct them and examine them. And they're in this constant state of upgrading. They, They would rather be the source of disruption rather than waiting for someone else to thrust it upon them. So break it to fix it is this notion of, hey, instead of just accepting things as they are, be willing to confront tradition and conventional wisdom and exploring a better way. So kind of the sense of always being in an upgrading uh, state. Open a test kitchen. So once you have that mindset that you're willing to, to shake things up a little bit, the scary part is we think that innovation goes like this. Come up with an idea, roll it out globally. That generally is wildly risky. Like, don't do that. that. We're missing a crucial step. And the crucial step that we're missing is experimentation. A much more pragmatic approach, a less risky approach to innovation is the idea, come up with lots of ideas. Don't bet all on one. And then test them cheap and fast. So if we can get into the groove of low fidelity, cheap, fixed time, fixed money experiments, it takes the agonizing risk off the table. And so instead, of, if you have one, let's say you're like, okay, I'm charged with solving a problem and you put all your eggs in one basket, that's really scary. What if it doesn't work? If, on the other hand, you said, hey, we came up with 10 possible ideas. Let's test them each in 15 minutes for 30 bucks. And again, cheap, crude testing. And you discard the ones that don't show promise, double down on the ones that do. So by the time you get to rolling something out in a big way, you've already swept most of the risk off the table. And the phrase that you, that you reference, open a test kitchen, uh, is borrowed from the restaurant industry. If you ran a restaurant, what you're not going to do is on a busy Saturday night when the place is humming, say like, hey, let's experiment with some new dishes. That, that's not the time or place to do it. Many restaurants have literally what's called a test kitchen, which is where they have all the ingredients and the equipment they need, and they get to experiment in a safe environment where they don't have real diners uh, evenings on the line. And so the more as companies that we can have embrace that same mindset, it doesn't have to be a physical place. It's more of a mindset of experimentation. The more we can say, okay, let's come up with not just one idea and roll it out globally. Let's come up with lots of ideas, test them in our test kitchen environment. And then, and then again, once we do proceed, we can proceed with a lot less risk. We've actually done that with some customers. Let's say we have a new product or service that we're thinking is going to be you know, completely innovative or completely different, but we want to try to gauge what our customer would really think about it. Oh, it's not going to be that great, or I don't think we could use it. So we look to a trusted customer, maybe a longtime customer, a customer that I know is going to give us real feedback, not going to hold back. And we will test it out on them and say, all right, what do you think? Do you think this would be good for your company? Do you think it'd be good for your competitors? Do you think do you think this is viable out there? Is it worth for us putting our resources in? Because quite frankly, we could have a lot of great dishes in that test kitchen, right? But if I'm cooking completely Italian and my audience is not really into Italian or Mediterranean food, it's not gonna resonate with them even though they're really good dishes. I think experimenting even on customers 
good customers or trusted customers or partners might not be a bad idea either. What do you think about that? You are spot on. I agree 100%. Because one of the risks in any type of innovation is the trap you think you're your own audience. You know, And so if I'm trying to come up with a, a clothing line for teenage girls and I'm a 52-year-old male, like I'm not going to have the right insights. And so the idea here is anytime that you can get closer to the customer, your accuracy improves. In fact, in many test kitchens, they will invite customers. There, there's one that I wrote about uh, for Shake Shack, a very large brand uh, chain of of, of uh, burger joints. And they have this innovation kitchen in New York and they invite customers. And so you can come and they'll, they'll try out some like really weird burger combination. And, and it's fun for customers and they, they get their feedback. They get to eat the food for free. Of course, they, the folks ask them a bunch of questions. They take pictures and clipboards and notes and stuff. And so, so their innovation process absolutely involves their end customer, not just the cooks in the kitchen. I think that's a great metaphor for us to embrace. I agree. It's surprising that even though we feel, I mean, we're all professionals in our industry, even though we think we know our customer 100%, we really don't. And their opinions can change over time. What they would have liked and enjoyed and needed five years ago can be completely different right now. There's a wonderful quote from Steve Wynn, who done some bad things, but the quote predates that. And the quote is that what would have drawn a wow 15 years ago, won't draw a yawn today. Mm. And I've always loved that quote because he's exactly right. You know, that, that the customer tastes are changing. We don't live in a static environment. We live in a rate of change like none other in history. So the notion of, you know, relying on a previous insight and expecting it to, to carry forward forever, you know, that, that's a fool's bet. And so I think you're exactly right. The notion of sort of adapting our innovations, it gets back to the notion of always be upgraded. One of the things I love about tech companies is there's always the next version some software comes out version 4.0 and it puts version 3.0 out of business. There's actually a term for it, forced obsolescence or planned obsolescence. I love that idea. And I think frankly that we should do that in all areas of of business and even life. Like, like let's say there's some system that we've been relying on for 20 years. Let's examine it. You know, if it's optimized, if it's perfect in today's conditions, great, keep it. Don't change just for the sake of it, but maybe there's a better way. And maybe we've been, been kind of lazy, like relying on it for so long, but, but now, since the world has changed, maybe we need to change along with it. So I love this notion of, of, of looking at, uh, at innovation across time and not falling onto, into the trap of something that was successful in the past, thinking that it will work forever. That is a great reminder because we are going by the speed of light compared to 20 years ago in our industry, especially on the technology and the digital side. And we have certain platforms right now that we feel we are the leader in, what I'm reminding leadership is that, all right, in this year, by X time this year, we're going to reevaluate this entire system. And I've received comments like, well, why? This is great. Yeah, but you know what? It may not be great next year. And I really don't want to give my competitors an opportunity to kind of one-up me and get ahead of me or like Frogger, jump on my back and be able to do something better. Yeah, you know, there's a risk in that. You're not saying it just in a paranoid way, but I've seen companies do that. They're so worried that they're going to cannibalize their own business or they're going to give a tip to the competitor. They actually use that as an excuse to freeze, you know, like deer in headlights. A good example, you know, Kodak obviously invented the digital camera, but they were so worried about cannibalizing their core business, they basically buried the technology and someone else leapfrogged them. And so I think that, well, we certainly need to assess competitive risk, of course, 
we also shouldn't be timid about innovation. And the best innovators that I've seen sort of win in the marketplace as opposed to like trying to protect something in the courtroom or, you know, some strategy like that. And so I found that if you can get out there, demonstrate innovation, serve customers in a more profoundly better way, and then by the time competition copies you, you're already on to the next one. So the notion of sort of rapid, ongoing, consistent change is to me a better competitive strategy than trying to do something that you can protect. Because today it's hard to protect many things. Josh, it's been great talking to you. And I have two final questions for you. The one tougher one is if you had one piece of advice or one area advice for 2023 for teams, what would that be? You know, we spend much of our professional lives being heads down, getting our work done, transactional, et cetera. And my piece of advice for 2023 is to carve out a little bit of time to be heads up. You know, if you were investing your, your retirement funds, you wouldn't put it all in one stock. That's kind of what we do in business. We put all of our energy into execution. On the other side, I would love for us to carve out a small piece, just like your balanced portfolio, you know, 2%, 3%, and invest that in heads up time where we're imagining the possibilities, where we're developing our creative abilities, where we're exploring what's, what's fresh, where we're challenging conventional wisdom, where we're willing to consider what's possible instead of just what is. And I think just allocating a teeny bit of time will yield a disproportionately large set of rewards. All right, the second question. Now, this has nothing to do with the industry, just with Josh. What is your one new habit for 2023? I play around with habits and goals and such all the time. I'm, I'm always tweaking and hacking. Like, I, same thing, I, you know, the system that worked five years ago probably wouldn't work as well today. I know everybody says this, so it's sort of cheesy, but I'm actually trying to exercise more. My wife, Tia, is a workout-aholic, and I have so much uh, love and respect for her, her consistency. So I'm trying to get back at some health goals right now. I know it's not the most bold and profoundly new thing to say, but that's the thing I've been working on. Well, when we circle back with you the second half of the year, maybe I'm going to have to remember to re-ask that question to you. How's it going? Josh Linkner, Creative Troublemaker, thank you so much for being our first guest in season four of FNF Unplugged. And the biggest thing that I wrote down today out of this discussion is that setting aside of heads up time. So thank you so much for your creativity, for your innovation, and your motivation. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you and wishing everybody all the best for a great 2023. If you have questions, comments, or would like us to feature a specific topic, email fnfeducation at fnf.com. Thanks for downloading FNF Unplugged, a presentation of the FNF family of companies. All rights reserved. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only. The podcast is not a comprehensive overview of the subject and is not intended to provide legal or financial advice or any endorsement of any product or business. The views expressed by podcast guests are their own and their appearance on the podcast does not imply any endorsement of them or any entity they represent, including Fidelity National Financial or its directors. Please seek legal or financial advice before taking any action on the matters or products discussed in this podcast.